Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Shadows of Savannah, Part 1 Most Haunted. We arrive in Savannah on a quiet January day. Though the weather is mild, it is the off-season for tourism, and there are not many people around. It has been many years since I have visited this city, just two hours south of Charleston, and similar to it in so many ways. Though by the time this day is over, it will have begun to manifest a number of eerie differences. Like Charleston, Savannah is an old city, having been founded in 1733 by a member of the English Parliament named James Oglethorpe. It sits atop a bluff alongside the Savannah River, 18 miles from the Atlantic Ocean. The river, and indirectly the city, are thought to have been named after a native tribe that settled in the area in the late 1600s. The colony was intended to shield the increasingly valuable Carolina colony from the threat of the Spanish in St. Augustine, Florida. The town was laid out with a series of squares, which were originally intended to organize the colony to better survive along the southern frontier of English America. There were initially four of them, though more would be added as the city grew reaching a total of 24 by 1851. Today, these squares are beautiful parks and are part of Savannah's historic district. They bear the names and contain monuments dedicated to important people and events from the city's history. Like Charleston, Savannah has a rich history. The city would be the site of one of the bloodiest battles of the American Revolution but was spared the fate of cities like Atlanta and Columbia, South Carolina, when it surrendered at the approach of General William Tecumseh Sherman during the American Civil War. Upon arriving, our first stop is Columbia Square, created in 1799 and named in honor of the historical personification of the United States. Along its northwest side sits the William Kehoe House Historic Inn, which is where my wife Beatrice and I will be spending the night. This four-story Victorian brick mansion, its exterior adorned in cast iron trim, was completed in 1892 as a residence for iron foundry owner William Kehoe, his wife Annie, and their 10 children. The house was sold in 1930 and became an inn in 1992. After checking in, we make our way upstairs to our third-floor room. This floor was where the children's bedrooms were located. Though by all accounts, the Kehoe family's life here was a happy one, 
it was not without tragedy. Two of their children died here. This fact, which by the light of day seems a sad piece of the building's history, will take on a more frightening aspect later that night. However, while the sun is still shining, our attention turns to the city outside, and after dropping off our luggage, we set out to explore Savannah. That night, we enjoy a dinner in one of the oldest buildings in the state of Georgia, though there is some debate as to its exact age. The Pirate House restaurant is a maze of 15 dining rooms. A man dressed as a pirate wanders through them talking with customers and sharing the building's history. It was supposedly built in 1753 as a residence for a gardener who tended to a nearby botanical garden. It was later turned into an inn. The current building was originally the inn's tavern. It catered to sailors, some of whom were suspected of being pirates, and it wasn't long before the place gained a dark reputation. Today, the restaurant still enjoys a dark reputation, but for an entirely different reason. The restaurant is also said to be haunted, Employees as well as customers have reported seeing glasses and bottles move across the bar of their own accord. Savannah historian and author James Caskey describes several strange occurrences in his book, Haunted Savannah, America's Most Spectral City. A cook was surprised when he saw a man dressed as an 18th century sailor walk into the kitchen. The restaurant employs people in period costume to entertain the guests as they eat, so he might have thought at first that it was one of the reenactors, but he didn't recognize the man, who stopped and stared at him. It was then that the cook became frightened. He would later describe the man as threatening. The cook seemed to have felt that he was in some danger. However, much to his relief, after a moment, the man resumed his walk through the kitchen where he disappeared through a door without opening it. There are many stories about the pirate house, not the least of which is that there is a secret tunnel that leads from the cellar down to the river. According to local folklore, sailors drinking in the tavern were sometimes kidnapped and dragged through the tunnel to ships waiting in the river where they would be forced to join the crew. Workers in the restaurant have reported hearing the voices of men coming from the cellar. However, when they go down to investigate, they find the space empty. The tunnel was later sealed, but its existence was seemingly confirmed when a hidden space was discovered in the cellar in 1962. However, today, there is some debate as to whether this was in fact the infamous tunnel or may have been part of some other structure. A former server named Lisa, who had heard the stories about the secret tunnel, convinced some friends to accompany her down into the cellar to look for it. But as she descended the stairs, she became lightheaded and nauseous and had to be helped back upstairs. The sick feeling returned every time she entered the building after that, 
and she was soon forced to quit her job. The restaurant is said to be haunted by the ghost of a pirate named Captain John Flint, who died in the tavern in 1754, suffering from acute cyanosis brought on by alcoholism as he begged for one last drink of rum. Flint was once the captain of the pirate ship Walrus. In August of 1750, after looting Spanish coastal cities in Central and South America, he and six of his men went ashore on a deserted island where they built a stockade and then buried their treasure. Once it was safely hidden, he killed the other men. He drew a map to the location of the treasure, a map on which X marked the spot, and then he left the island. Four years later, realizing that he would never see that island again, he gave his map to another pirate named Billy Bones. The biggest problem with this story is that Captain Flint was a fictional character created by Robert Louis Stevenson for his novel Treasure Island. Flint would not be the only fictional character we found to have been given life in Savannah. This is a city where the line between fact and fiction becomes blurred, and it is not difficult for a visitor with a casual interest in the city's many stories to lose their way. Savannah claims the title of the most haunted city in America, and it is easy to see why. There are so many ghost stories here, and after dinner, we make our way to Oglethorpe Square to learn some of them. Oglethorpe Square was laid out by James Oglethorpe in 1742. It is surrounded by beautiful homes, one of which is the Owens Thomas House, which sits on the north side of the square. It is considered one of the finest examples of Regency architecture in the city. This house, which is today a National Historic Landmark, was built in 1819 for a wealthy banker who only lived there for three years before a financial setback forced him to turn it over to the bank. It was transformed into a lavish boarding house, one that hosted the Marquis de Lafayette when he visited the city in 1825. Five years later, Mayor George Welshman Owens purchased the house and returned it to being a private residence. It is now open as a museum. Having read a little bit about the house prior to our visit, I can't help but wonder as we walk around the side of it if we are being watched. Previous visitors to the house have described seeing a man in 18th century clothing. A tour guide, conducting a ghost tour outside the home, saw a match flare up on a balcony and smelled cigar smoke. But there was no one there. We were met in the square by T.C. Michaels, who, along with his wife Brenna, owns and operates Genteel and Bard, a tour company that offers both daytime history and nighttime ghost tours. They are longtime residents and historians, as well as authors of the book Hidden History of Savannah. They had taken my ghost tour on a previous visit to Charleston, so when I decided to visit Savannah, I gave them a call. One of our first stops on the tour is Wright Square, the second oldest square in Savannah. It is named in honor of the colony's last royal governor, 
Sir James Wright. It is also the site of the city's courthouse, which was built in 1898 and has been used in movies like Cape Fear and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Travel writer and author Georgia R. Bird, in her book, Haunted Savannah, describes a visit to this place by Mary Rutland and her son James, who were visiting Savannah during summer vacation. After having become distracted, Mary noticed that her son had wandered off. She found him standing near the rock which marks the burial place of Tomochichi, the leader of the Yamacraw tribe that greeted the colonists when they first arrived. Her son appeared to be talking to someone, but she couldn't see anyone else near him. She called out, but he stayed where he was. As she approached, she could hear him talking, but as she continued to look around, she could see that there was no one else there. When she got close, James stopped talking and turned to look at her. She asked him what he was doing, and he said that he was talking to a lady. Again, she looked around and didn't see anyone, so she asked him, what lady? He said that she was gone now. She asked him, what did she look like? He said that the lady was wearing a black dress and that she had sores around her neck. She asked James what they talked about. He said that the woman told him that she had been looking for him, and that now they would be together forever. His mother, unsure of what was happening, and suddenly frightened, grabbed his hand and pulled him aboard a nearby trolley to leave the square. Wright Square was not only the location of the courthouse, it was also once the location of the gallows. In the 18th century, it was known as the Hanging Square, and it was the place where a woman named Alice Riley met her end. Alice Riley was accused by some of witchcraft and of putting a curse on the city. But if ever there was a curse associated with Alice Riley, she was its victim and not its source. She came to Savannah from Ireland in 1733, fleeing a famine and hoping for a better life. It was a journey that she could not afford, and so she had to indenture herself, trading years of her life for the cost of the passage across the Atlantic. And she was not alone. There were 40 more like her aboard the ship, which was forced to seek shelter at Savannah during a storm. The governor of the colony bought the indentured servants from the ship's captain, and Alice, along with a man named Richard Wright, were placed in the home of a man named William Wise, a seedy character who gained some notoriety on the voyage over when he attempted to pass off a sex worker as his daughter. Wise had a farm on Huntington Island across the river from the city, and Richard and Alice were both sent to work there. It is suspected that Alice was sexually abused by William Wise, even as she fell in love with Richard. In March of 1734, the couple murdered Wise and fled, but they didn't get far. They were quickly captured and returned to the city. Their punishment for the murder would be death. 
Richard was swiftly hanged, but Alice's execution was postponed when it was discovered that she was pregnant. She was kept in prison until after the child was born. After the birth, the baby was taken away and she was not allowed to see her child again. As she was taken to the gallows to be executed, she begged to see the baby, not realizing he had died over a month earlier. No one had bothered to tell her. She had held him in her arms for just a few moments after he was born, just long enough to give him a name, James. Later in the tour, we come to Madison Square, named for President James Madison. It was created in 1837. At its center stands a statue commemorating Sergeant William Jasper, who gave his life recovering his company's flag in a bloody battle that was fought here during the American Revolution. On one side of the square stands the Sorrel Weed House, a national historic landmark, considered by some to be the most haunted house in America. It was built in 1841 by a planter named Francis Sorrel, who immigrated to the United States from what is today the Dominican Republic, and shortly after his arrival, married a woman named Lucinda Moxley. They would go on to have three children. Lucinda died in 1827 from yellow fever, though there were rumors of foul play. Two years later, he married his wife's younger sister. They would go on to have eight children. His second marriage also ended tragically, when on March 27, 1860, his wife threw herself from a second-floor balcony and died when her head struck a paving stone. It is believed that she had learned that her husband had on several occasions raped an enslaved African girl who worked in the house. According to the story, two weeks later, the girl was found hanging in her room in the servants' quarters behind the house. Her death is most often described as a suicide. However, there is at least one piece of evidence that suggests that like so many things in her life, she was given no choice as to the time and manner of her death. The television show Ghost Hunters visited the room in October of 2005 and recorded a voice saying, Get out! Get out! Help me! My God! My God! As the night progresses, our tour arrives at a large graveyard in the heart of the historic district. Colonial Park Cemetery was established in 1750, and in just over a century, up until the year 1853, there were over 9,000 people buried here. Among them were Button Gwinnett and Lachlan McIntosh. Gwinnett, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, was killed by McIntosh in a duel. There are over 700 people here who died in a yellow fever epidemic and have no grave markers. This cemetery is also home to one of Savannah's darkest legends. Those stories say that there were once tunnels underneath the graveyard, dark passages that the locals referred to as Renee's Playground. Renee Ash Brondlier was said to be seven feet five inches tall and covered in coarse hair. 
It was said that he tortured and killed animals in his youth, and that some in town feared he was a demon. The night of his birth, in September of 1804, a doctor was summoned to the home of a woman in agony. She had been in labor for three days. The doctor quickly determined that the child was too big to be delivered naturally, so he broke her pelvis in order to deliver the 16-pound baby. The child grew to be very strong, and a kinder version of the story, while still describing him as being monstrous in appearance, says that when he caused harm, it was without intent. It was said that he had a fondness for small animals, but not realizing his own strength, he would often snap their necks when he tried to hold them. He didn't speak English, only broken French that he learned from his mother, and he was feared by those he encountered in the city. His family was forced to lock him in a cage. However, he escaped, and soon after the body of a little girl was found in what is today Warren Square with a broken neck. A mob, no doubt armed with pitchforks and torches, went hunting for him, and soon tracked him to the tunnels underneath the cemetery, where he was eventually captured. They took him to the site of Warren Square, to the place where the body of the girl was first discovered, and placed a noose around his neck. They threw a rope over the thick limbs of the tree and heaved until they managed to lift him off the ground. He hung there for a long time. He was slow to die. Eventually, his body was brought down from the tree and was buried across the river on Huntington Island, the same place where Richard Wright and Alice Riley murdered William Wise. Even in death, they did not want him close. However, though René's corpse was removed from the city, some believed that his spirit never left. After his execution, the murders continued. Bodies were found in the dark of night, usually that of a child, their neck broken, as if killed by someone of immense strength. But even that was not the end of the story. A Savannah socialite named James Bevan, while on a trip to England, met philosopher and writer William Godwin and shared with him the story of the monster that had so recently terrorized his home. Godwin, in turn, shared the story with his daughter. Her name was Mary Shelley, and the story of René Ashe-Rondlier, the monster of Savannah, would prove to be the inspiration for the monster in her novel, Frankenstein. It is an amazing story. However, according to virtually every expert, it is not fact, but folklore. It is extremely unlikely that Mary Shelley ever heard the story of René Rondlier. There is no evidence that he ever existed. Or is there? Across the river from Savannah on Huntington Island stands the Weston Savannah Harbor Golf Resort and Spa. When it was being built between 1997 and 1999, another local story says that the workers discovered an unmarked grave. It contained the skeleton that was over seven feet long with a gigantic skull. However, like everything else where Rene is concerned, there is little in the way of evidence. 
It is simply a matter of belief. Later that night, we returned to the Kehoe house. There are very few people staying there, and there is no one else staying on the third floor. It feels like we have the house to ourselves. Beatrice was alarmed to discover on the tour that there were some things that I had neglected to tell her about the beautiful mansion where we would be spending the night. After the Kehoe family sold the house in 1930, it was used for 50 years as a funeral home. The parlor, where we enjoyed a snack before heading out to dinner, was once used as a viewing room. However, this paled next to the revelation that the house is considered to be one of the most haunted houses in the city. Late that night, I spend some time walking around the house. The attachment of the Kehoe family to the home apparently runs deep. An apparition called the Lady in Grey, thought to be the ghost of Anne Kehoe, has been seen in one of the bedrooms on the second floor. Just outside the door of our room on the third floor is a staircase that goes up. Curiosity gets the better of me, and I follow the staircase to find a room that was once William Kehoe's study. Others who have ventured up here have claimed to see a light emanating from underneath the door, which probably wouldn't bother a guest so much as an employee of the inn who knew that the room was not being used, that the door was locked, and that they were the only one who had the key. One of the things that we noticed when we arrived was that there was a statue of an angel on the mantle of the fireplace in our room. One of the most pervasive stories associated with the Kehoe house involves two of their children, twins, around four or five years old, who were discovered to have gone missing. A frantic search of the house turned up nothing. Days passed and the family was desperate. That was when they began to notice a foul smell emanating from one of the chimneys. It was discovered that the twins had climbed up into the chimney and become stuck and that they had somehow asphyxiated and died. Afterwards, all the chimneys were sealed and were decorated with angels to memorialize the twins. Most historians and tour guides consider the story to be legend, but I spend some time wandering the halls of the house, hoping for an encounter like the one in the movie The Shining. No such luck. I eventually return to our room and go to bed. While the chimney story appears to be legend, the family did lose two small children to illness. There have been incidents where someone staying in a room on the second or third floor has awoken in the middle of the night to see a child standing at the foot of their bed. The child ducks down, and if the person gets out of bed and looks, they find that they are gone. Stories like this gave my wife a not-so-restful night, but my thoughts turned to a walk that we had taken after the ghost tour and before we returned to the Kehoe house. After we left Colonial Park Cemetery, our guide, T.C., told us the story of Conrad Aiken, a prolific poet and author who is one of Savannah's most famous literary figures. He was born in 1889, and grew up in a row of houses across the street from the cemetery. As a child, in February 1901, Conrad was listening to his parents arguing in their room when suddenly the house grew quiet. He heard his father count to three, and then the sound of a gunshot. 
His father counted again, and then there was another gunshot. Conrad ran out of the house to a nearby police station. His father had murdered his mother and then killed himself. Conrad was sent away to live with relatives, but returned to Savannah in 1962. After his return, he visited his parents' grave in Bonaventure Cemetery, just outside the city. Their burial plot was close to the river, and he noticed a passing cargo ship with the name Cosmos Mariner. Intrigued by the name, he checked the shipping news to see where it was headed. Its destination was listed as unknown. When he died, Aiken left instructions that his tombstone was to be made in the shape of a bench so that others could sit there and watch the ships passing down the river. The inscription was to read, Conrad Aiken, Cosmos Mariner, Destination Unknown. It is a hopeful thought that we are released into the cosmos after death. But while some spirits may have departed to explore the heavens, others appear to have remained anchored to the city in which they died, weighed down by a desire for revenge. After the tour, we had one more place to visit before we returned to the inn, so we started walking. We passed through Wright Square, but no woman in black approached us. Next, we crossed Chippewa Square, built in 1815 and named for the Battle of Chippewa, which was fought two years before in Canada during the War of 1812. The square is best known for being the location of the iconic park bench scenes in the movie Forrest Gump. We returned to Madison Square, home of the Sorrel Weed House, but if there was a cry for help emanating from the servants' quarters behind the house, we didn't hear it. The streets were empty at this time of night, a fact that now that the tour was over and we were on our own, we found less than comforting. Nevertheless, we walked alone through the shadows of Savannah, a half-world of fact and fiction, lost in a no-man's land between truth and lies. Savannah is a place where reality often appears to be shaped by belief, and a place where it is so malleable that if the story that awaits us at our destination is any indication, it is a place that some might find is a tempting environment to commit a murder. We finally arrive at Monterey Square that marks the edge of the historic district. The square is named for the Battle of Monterey, which occurred during the Mexican-American War, a battle in which American forces captured the Mexican city of that name a fact that my wife would find less than impressive if I chose to share it with her, which I don't. There on the west side of the square, at 429 Bull Street, stands the Mercer House, built between 1860 and 1871 by Hugh Mercer, a banker who served in the U.S. Army before the Civil War and in the Confederate Army during the war. His great-grandson was the famous singer and songwriter Johnny Mercer. Today, the house is a museum, but from 1969 until 1990, it was the home of preservationist and antique dealer Jim Williams, the only man in the history of Georgia to be tried four times for the same murder, a murder he committed in this house on May 2, 1969. 
1981. The story was told by author John Barrent in his 1994 book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, and then again in the Clint Eastwood movie of the same name, which was based on the book. That book spent 216 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, in part because it is amazingly well-written, but also because it was labeled as nonfiction and was believed to be true. However, like so many other Savannah stories, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil contains elements of both fact and fiction. And if you believe in angry spirits motivated by a need for revenge, then there was not one murder committed in this house, but two. And the second one was committed by a ghost. Please join me in a couple of weeks for Shadows of Savannah Part 2, The Dead Time. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written and performed by Mike Brown. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Michael Dalbello at Charleston Sound Studio. For more information on Pleasing Terrors, please visit us on Facebook and Twitter at pleasingtears.com. Thank you for listening.